Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Sip With Me. I'm your host, Iwana Kekados. And I'm your host, Aaron Carlson. We'll release an episode for you every Monday at 10.30 a.m. Central Time, which means you can listen to us during your commute, after work workout, or even enjoy a drink with us during your very own Monday night happy hour. And who doesn't like to have a little fun on a Monday night? Don't forget to download all of our recipes on sipwithme.org. And be sure to check out our mystery bartender, whip up all of our favorite drink recipes on our TikTok at sipwithme underscore. Hey guys, and welcome to the seventh official episode of season three. For this week's cocktail, we focused on the Zelda Fitzgerald cocktail, which consists of gin, honey syrup, ginger beer, and lemon juice. And it is a gin-based twist on a prohibition classic. So remember, before you drink it, raise your glass to Zelda and toast her and all the other women whose identities have been consumed by their husbands. So grab your Zelda Fitzgerald cocktail and let's meet the leading ladies of criminology to discuss this week's topic, women and crime. Welcome back to the episode. Yuan and I were literally and figuratively jumping for joy when this episode's guests agreed to come on the show. They are the hosts of the Women in Crime podcast, a female-focused true crime podcast, which tells true crime stories about women and also includes the science, criminal theory, and a whole bunch of other good content behind those stories. So, ladies, thank you for joining thank us you. today. So, first thank you. First thank you for having us. Of course. Thank you for um, jumping on. Um, tell us a little bit about yourselves, and you both have pretty impressive backgrounds, so tell us about uh, those as well, as well as how you got into doing this podcast together. You want me to go first? Yeah. Okay, so I'm Amy. Um, I am currently a criminology professor at Fairleigh Dickinson University, where I teach a variety of courses, um, crim theory, research methods, data analysis, but more interestingly, race and crime, wrongful conviction, offender reentry. I'm also obviously a podcaster along with Megan, but we'll get into that in a moment. Um, I have my master's in forensic psychology and my PhD in criminal justice. And I do most of my research on the causes and remedies of wrongful conviction and some research on education in prison and really just the collateral consequences of incarceration. Okay. Beautiful. How nice. did you, but Amy, why did you get into this field? Why did I get into this field? Yeah. That's one of the things they said. Why did you, oh, how did you become sorry. interested in this field? Um, I missed that part. <laughs> uh, I've always had an interest in social justice. And I think I've worked in the mental health field maybe early on. And then I honestly don't even remember. So just edit it to make me sound fabulous somehow. No, you've always, <laughs> you've always had an interest in social justice from a young age. You said that. Oh, so yeah. I feel like okay. that was kind of what your impetus has always been. That's what I've always understood. Unless yeah. you were, you know. Yeah, like from a very young age, I was able to <laughs> notice the discrepancies in our society um, based yeah. on race, socioeconomic status, et cetera. And you know, I always wanted to do something that would you know, help the greater field of social yeah. justice. Amy's a better person than I am. I watched really <laughs> bad crime shows with my mom when I was a kid. She let me stay up late and watch them. And literally from those shows, I was like, I want to be this prosecutor. Uh -huh. I want to be this person. Yep. I was always interested. <laughs> I know. It's like the thing I would tell my students not to do, but that's how <laughs> I came into this field. Um, I always loved criminal law no matter what. I just figured out that I didn't want to work with lawyers. So I got my master's in criminology. 
And I worked as a federal probation officer in New York for a couple of years. And then when I realized that the system was totally flawed, I jumped that ship and got into academia and got my degree, my PhD in criminology, so I could write and research and, and do all these things that were critical of the system. I teach classes, some of them similar to Amy, like I teach criminological theory, um, but I also teach uh, some of the fun classes like serial killers and uh, I know, right? Forensics and I teach a class on women in crime, which is probably part of the inspiration for our podcast. And um, so that's probably it on me. All right. See, I love, that's why we were so excited to have you both because we could tell that you do approach this field with a critical lens, which I think, you know, if, if you're just doing true crime from the surface level, a lot of people forget to do that or don't necessarily have the background or education to do that. And even further than that, centering certain groups around not only just the crimes that are committed, but the motives, the psychology behind it, and the right. actual system, which is stacked against a lot of different people and it is very, very flawed. Um, Very flawed. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the podcast, you know, the stories that you tell, but then also a little bit about um, that part of it where you do kind of, you have that, you have the education and expertise to be critical and to really dive deep into some of those areas that some other shows miss. So I think what we do that sets us apart is when we tell the stories, it's not just here's the story for the story's sake. It's what did we learn from the story? How can this, how does this story connect to other stories that have affected policy? Or, you know, what, how does, you know, sometimes people are a little more complex than, you know, this person killed someone. Okay, but who were they? You know, sometimes you see the victim and the offender are one in the same. And it's important to understand why people do the things they do, not necessarily to justify bad behavior, but really just have some empathy, have some humanity, just understand you know, how this all fits into the greater world. And learn methods of prevention. Of I mean, course, you're yeah. never going to deter all crime, but if you actually know the causes behind crime, then you can work to prevent it on a meaningful scale as opposed to just flooding the market with police officers, which yep. sometimes is the right approach, but not always. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So I think it's important that people learn something when they listen to true crime, because you know, there's a little controversy around, you know, true crime and you know, using other people's stories for entertainment, but that's exactly what we're not doing, is we're yeah. not just telling the stories, again, for the sake of telling the stories. We're telling the stories so our listeners learn something in the process. And I'm not sure if you guys know this, but Women in Crime was not our first podcast, but... Uh, oh, no. I okay. Didn't we didn't know so that. So our first podcast is actually called Direct Appeal, and Direct Appeal is a serialized podcast that focuses on a potential wrongful conviction of... Um, Melanie McGuire, who was convicted in New Jersey in 2007 of the murder and dismemberment of her husband, Bill McGuire. And so she had reached out to us, as many offenders do, looking for some type of help, just an outlet to tell her story. And so I decided to meet with her and began meeting with her and realized that she had a really interesting story. And also there were real potential problems with her trial. And so that's where the initial idea came to do that podcast for me and Amy. And then what happened was so many people wrote to us uh, along the way, suggesting other cases. And so many of them were female centered. There was Mm -hmm. such an interest in it. And I thought about also 
you know, my class women in crime filling up quickly, people wanted to know more. So Amy and I were, were like, yeah, we can, we can give you more. Um, and so that's how the idea to do uh, an episodic podcast came about. Yeah. And kind of going off of that, um, I don't think I've seen that many podcasts that are true crime that just center around um, females and kind of fe female victims as well as female killers. Um, why do you think the um, female focused narrative is so appealing to audiences? God, you could go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll start and then Megan can jump in. Um, I've been, you know, looking at the research a little and we know that people who consume true crime are overwhelming women. It seems like the numbers are between 75 and 85%. So that's pretty high. So it's definitely an interesting question. Why are women so drawn? So drawn? There goes my jersey. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so drawn. Drawn. <laughs> I think, you know, I think it has to do with just the fact that women are, you know, number one, they're empathetic beings, right? They're interested in why these things happen. But I think yeah. we all have this inherent fear of becoming victimized. So I think there's something about women being so attracted to these stories because we're li like living vicariously through, you know, these victims and maybe learning a little bit too on how we could protect ourselves. I also think that women were historically because of gender roles, not thought to be inherently criminal. Right. right. So it's only really in modern times do we have, we started to study the female as an offender and it almost like violates what we believe. So it's almost a even a step more of, you know, we expect males to do these things. I mean, it's just the way it's been historically, and that's the way we've looked at it through criminal, uh, through criminology. So I think when women do it, it's almost like we're curious about the quote unquote violation of gender norms. Like, wow, if a woman, a woman can be bad too. I don't know. I think there's something appealing about that as well. Well, because women are seen as nurturers, right? Especially yes. when you have a woman who kills her children or, right. you know, they're, right. they're supposed to be caring for this person or, you know, it becomes this whole other Absolutely. Yeah. And something we've seen just kind of looking at uh, female serial killers or just kind of doing our own research um, is that most women do kill people they know, uh, their husbands, um, their kids, or they're either in a caregiver type position. Um, so I think that's something very interesting that we don't really see among male killers. Um, and I'd like to kind of get your take on why that is, as well as um, just kind of go through uh, the differences between uh, what we typically see uh, with male serial killers versus female. Okay, I'll just start off by saying uh, the reason why the difference between most female serial killers is male serial and male serial killers is that male serial killers kill for pleasure or joy. And so um, they're satisfying usually a sexual pleasure, you know, or a power control pleasure. Whereas women, what <laughs> might be more practical, we kill for utilitarian purposes, meaning there's a utility in our murder. Usually the utility is money, to be honest. So, or, or the, when women kill their children, sometimes the utility is just that they don't want to have their children or the burden anymore. Just like altruistic almost, right? Um, altruistic is more like, I think, like the, the women think that they're doing their kids a favor, well, like saving them. sometimes like Andrea Gates, right? Sometimes, I guess. It could be that. It could be that. It could be that. Those are a little bit rarer, mm -hmm. I would say. I would say usually women are just killing for the purpose of, you know, they, they need something. There's a perceived benefit um, that is not just like a hedonistic benefit. 
there was more to that. Do you want to jump in at all about differences between women? No, and I was females? just going to say, it seems that women are more instrumental, right? And men are more expressive when you think of like the different types of violence. It's absolutely true. And women obviously have to use the methods that are more either available to them, and, which is usually, this is why women are usually poisoners um, because they have the, you know, they have the ability to do it. And also because they have to figure out a way to manage. If they're going to kill a male, the truth is that they might be worried about the physical threat. So they're going to rely upon um, a less physical method, whereas males, part of the enjoyment and part of the, the pleasure of their serial killing is that physical element to it. And because they can often overpower smaller female victims. Mm. They're definitely, even just like from, like you want to mention, we are by no means experts, but just by skimming the surface and reading about different crimes and you know, we've discussed some men that have killed, some women that have killed, and those trends definitely kind of ring true, I guess, to like a, a common person like us that just has been exposed and, and hearing about stories online or in the media. Um, how is portrayal of men versus women killers different in terms of like formal media? maybe not necessarily what like you and I post on Facebook or Instagram, but in terms of how like the system of media and government talk about and portray um, the two genders, how, how is it different? Um, okay, so one of the things I would say is that obviously, you know, I can't generalize all media portrayals, but what I can say is that the portrayal breaks down very differently when women commit crimes, again, that we perceive to violate gender roles. So if a woman kills a child, if a woman harms a child, if a woman does something outside of what we see being, um, you know, the kind of female role, they are perceived much more and perceived much more harshly. And they're kind of painted much more harshly, you know, as kind of those monster women. Yeah. Whereas I'm not sure there's any difference for males, even when they do these, you know, even when there's extreme crimes for males, I don't think the portrayal is that much worse for them. It's almost more factual. I mean, it's still salacious, mm -hmm. but I think it's even more salacious when females commit these types of crimes. Well, and also usually uh, females, attractiveness or sexuality is brought up and we don't see that with males. Yeah. And we talked about that in the Melanie McGuire case that we covered is Melanie McGuire was an attractive young woman when she was on trial for murdering her husband. She was having an affair. And all of this really created that media circus around her because like not only did this mother of young children kill her husband and dismember her husband, look how attractive she is. And she was having an affair. And it really just, like you said, it's like just more salacious. And I think um, the media tends to downplay a little bit when when they talk about women, they downplay really societal influences or outside influences. It seems like they rely more on a woman's mental health or, you know, yeah. she went off the deep end or, yeah. you know, all these, you know, never really looking at the bigger picture or some of these like theories we talk about. Agreed. Yeah. Um, so just to kind of transition, we would love to know what you guys are kind of up to right now, as well as what you're doing during COVID. I know you guys are together um, and you guys are in a quarantine bubble, which is great. Um, so just kind of share with our audience uh, what you're up to and what you've been doing during COVID. You want to start? Yeah, you could go. <laughs> well, we were teaching for the semester and Amy has actually just taken over as the department chair oh, um, of our oh, new... Congrats. Yay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
of our newly <laughs> we have a new eyes get condolences. wide with stress <laughs> so amy's actually got her plate really full and whereas i stepped down so my my at least my academic plate has been a little um emptier in a very positive way for me uh, so we definitely were teaching we're always working on research and writing and we've been working on um actually lining up direct appeal season two so we've been interviewing uh, after, so the direct appeal after that case was featured on 2020, they did the, you know, the Melanie McGuire case. We received a lot of correspondence from people who asked for us to look at their cases. Yeah. And so we've been vetting those cases, reviewing, and we were pretty sure we've got it narrowed down to two cases now. Mm -hmm. um, just it's hard to pick one. We're only a yeah. small team here. Mm -hmm. We're also consistently working mm -hmm. on women in crime. And I, am not, I, won't, I won't give it away, but we are working on a new podcast. Too. Oh, my God. Oh, wow. I already have to go binge direct appeal. I can't keep up. It's We're very long. I warn you. First, yes, we didn't mean to do it that long. It was our first podcast, so forgive us. It's a little... Uh... The new Shaky. one is kind of one by demand <laughs> and it'll be shorter. It'll be like a 10 to 12 release episode, but I don't want to give it away just okay. yet. Yes. So yeah. Funny. Yeah. Direct appeal is 18 episodes and each episode is about an hour. Amy, so. that's unfair. It was 17. 17. <laughs> and the update, the follow-up. Oh, yeah. okay. Fine. The follow-up. <laughs> it was originally Definitely supposed feel to be that. 10 to 12 episodes, but that was before we had done this and I just couldn't censor myself as much as probably I should have. Yeah. And there was so much information in the case. It was crazy. Mm -hmm. yeah. it's, it's definitely, I mean, like we told you, oh, this episode will be half an hour and then watch, it'll be like two hours later and we're <laughs> chatting. Um, Amy, did you have anything to add about what you've been doing during no. your time? The only other thing I've been doing is I teach in prison, but I'm not allowed to be in the prisons right now because yeah. of COVID. So I've been doing a lot of correspondence prison teaching, which is pretty interesting. Um, but and hanging out with your kids, right? Oh, and hanging out with my kids and my puppy. Yes. Lots of... Oh. Uh, Amy got the cutest puppy during lots this of time. Homeschool, lots of homeschooling. Most adorable dog you've ever seen. The puppy seen. mitigated the homeschooling a little bit. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, just really working. Um, you know, I think season two is really what we're focused the most on right now. Yeah. Because we, we believe it is a wrongful conviction this time around. No. Wow. You don't? Sorry. You want to take that out? Oh, I don't think we know if it is. We, I think uh, on the surface, it seems like um, it's more questionable, I would say, that it's a wrongful conviction. Okay. Melanie's case was, I think we went in more like more thinking she was guilty. And this one, we're, we're trying not to go in with preconceived, but it seems to be a little more indicative of a possible wrongful mm -hmm. conviction. Fair enough. I'm so excited. <laughs> Thank you. We are too. <laughs> All right. Uh, you wanna, do you want to take us into today's story briefly? Yes. Um, so okay. I'll try to keep it short because I'm Greek, so I can ramble on for a very long time. Um, so I decided to um, pick the case of Eileen Bornis just because I think it's a really good example um, of a case where a lot of people kind of question whether she was a cold-blooded killer or was she a victim of her childhood and just kind of her upbringing. Um, so first, some context. Uh, in her case in particular, her father was a convicted child rapist who died in prison, and her mother had abandoned her as an infant. Um, so she was raised by her grandparents, um, and it, her, her grandfather as well was an alcoholic uh, who was very strict. 
Um, and so uh, they say that as a young girl, she also became very well known at school for providing sexual favors um, in exchange for change or cigarettes. Um, and so that kind of led to her feeling uh, not included in school. Um, and a lot of bullying as well. Um, I, I read that she had tried to throw in a party for her classmates. Um, no one showed up and, and a lot of people just kind of excluded her socially. Um, and so that's pretty traumatic, especially during those kind of early ages where kids are kind of going through all those things in life and to be excluded and have, you know, all those things happening at your household. That's, in my opinion, that's a lot to deal with. Mm -hmm. um, and so her social alienation only got worse uh, when she fell pregnant at 14 um, and she was allegedly raped by an older man. She then gave up her son for adoption um, and she was also shortly thrown out of her home um, right after she gave up her son for adoption. So again, at 14 years old, that's a lot to be pregnant, give up your kid, and then to be kicked out of your house. Um, and so she kind of wandered and hitchhiked for a little bit, and she met a um, young man, uh, or not a young man, actually, an elderly man um, who she fell in love with, and they actually got married. Um, but her, her kind of trauma with everything in her early life started to impact that relationship. Um, she had a really bad temper, violent rages, um, and ultimately uh, they ended up getting divorced. Um, she also had multiple arrests for crimes at that time, um, as well as served time for armed robbery. Um, so then moving on to the mid-80s, she met a woman who was a hotel maid, um, and she fell in love with her. They were inseparable. Um, but I thought this was really interesting. Uh, a lot of psychologists wonder uh, if the fact that they actually, when they broke up, was it because um, of her abandonment issues and stemming from her time feeling alienated and unloved and abused as a child uh, because she felt like she couldn't provide for this specific woman in that relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and then from there, she, uh, she was still a sex worker and that's kind of when she transitioned into, um, quote unquote, a murderer and her first victim who was uh, Richard Mallory. Um, he was a small business uh, man who picked her up on a Florida highway. Um, and she had claimed that she had shot him dead um, in self-defense after he tried to rape her. Um, it was later found out that he actually um, had been in jail before for housebreaking with intent to rape. Um, so this kind of debate, uh, she went on to kill seven other men um, you know, she kind of went back and forth on claiming she was driven to it. Then she confessed um, to robbing them um, as cold as ice. So kind of this back and forth of whether or not, you know, she was kind of led to it from her childhood or was she really just a cold-blooded killer? Um, I, I like that you guys kind of pointed out that, you know, it's people's childhoods and people's upbringing really does impact them. And it's something that's not always talked about or not highlighted, right? They're just a killer. Uh, but something happened that kind of led them to that point. So I'd love to kind of hear your feedback on that, as well as um, do you think the bullying and abuse she experienced as a young per person um, led her to this point? I think this case is a good example of how nature and nurture contribute because I think there might be something biological. We know that yeah. she has family history, uh, you know, violent behavior, but also her upbringing. You know, we teach about social learning theory where, you know, especially in childhood, obviously a child's gonna learn the behavior from those that are closest to them, but it's also a lot of strain in her life, right? So there was a lot, but, you know, from a very early age, she experienced a lot of devastation that at some point, I think, you know, maybe boiled over for her. 
Uh, Megan can talk a lot more on this because she's a serial killer expert. Serial killer and women in crime. I mean, <laughs> this is a classic example of what we say in our podcast that we examine victims and offenders. And sometimes these are one and the same. These are not mutually ex exclusive groups. Uh, oftentimes women in prison and women who have records are victims of crimes. Eileen was highly victimized, abandoned, traumatized. She had the worst of worst situations, which no doubt played a role. Obviously in her becoming a sex worker, that's a crime of survival. So then we punish women for committing these crimes of survival when without any skills, without any education, this was what she had to do to survive. Now, I, I understand the Richard Mallory murder. Um, I understand there she had claimed at first that he sexually assaulted her, then she claimed that that didn't happen. I believe that she was assaulted uh, by Mallory, and I do believe she killed him likely because she was afraid. And I think after that happened, it sort of triggered her or gave her something that we kind of call in our field the techniques of neutralization, meaning um, these are like situational excuses where now it's you're okay, you can wrap your mind around doing certain things. So now she told her, I think after that she told herself, these guys deserve it. They're all going to try to rape me. They're all, you know, awful human beings. So I think she was able to justify her further murders, which were not provocated in the same way, not provocated, sorry, not provoked in the same way. Um, it sounded fancy. I, I did. I don't think it was right. <laughs> so Eileen was, you know, she was victim and offender. She was, she was most definitely both. I think what's also lost is um, her, her partner, Tyria, knew a lot about what was going on. And Tyria sold her out pretty quickly for a deal for herself. And while wow. Tyria did not commit the murders, she had knowledge of it. And she was involved in some ways. And I think that was the most devastating thing for Eileen when she realized that the only person she had ever really truly come to love was the one who betrayed her. And, and it again, was it was like being re-victimized for her. Now, she was executed, as you both know. I think that that was an inappropriate use of the death penalty. I think Eileen should have been serving a life in prison term, but I do think given the mitigating factors in her life that the death penalty was not the most appropriate sentence for her and not the right message to send. Yeah. And that was an earful, sorry. <laughs> no, yeah, I completely agree. And I think it's interesting, again, kind of what we touched on um, in this particular case. I mean, she didn't kill within the home, which we tend to see with female serial killers, um, which I think is an interesting point. I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Well, they called her the first female yeah. serial killer. And it's not because she was literally the first. It was because she was the first that killed, quote unquote, like a man. So she was killing strangers. She was using a firearm. She wasn't, you know, a poisoner. She wasn't a mother. She wasn't a nurturer. And so this differentiated her um, from the traditional female who killed. Yeah, I just think it's an interesting case. I mean, I, I don't have as obviously a big background um, in criminology or even have as a, a little bit of expertise in this, but just kind of seeing the way um, people portray female serial killers and the fact that they kind of expect women to kill within the home. Um, and even just to say she killed like a man. I mean, I don't know. That's, right. What does that mean? I mean, I understand that. It's just like, I don't know. It's, yeah. <laughs> she was distinct in that way. Um, there's another thing that's also lost on her case. Sorry. Uh, 
there was a lot of media attention and everyone was trying to make a dollar off this case. So the police department, so many people were in talks to, everyone was seeking to exploit this woman after she had been the most exploited woman. Even if you see, um, you know, she had an adopted mother and she was trying to make money off the situation. I mean, I, I can't say, you can't necessarily feel terrible for a woman who's killed so many men, but you have to understand this woman is, she was one of the most victimized, exploited people. And it happened over and over and over again. And I think she was just re-traumatized too many times. Yeah. And last question, how, for people that listen to and are into true crime stories, podcasts, shows, et cetera, how can people, you know, kind of learn and build a lens through which they can be critical of the stories that we're telling around women? Again, not necessarily at a very deep expert level, but just when they're listening to have, be mindful and to get the knowledge and tools maybe to, you know, ask some thought-provoking critical questions of the statements that people are making in the media content that we're consuming. I think it's always important to look at, you know, if you're talking about a victim or an offender, again, you want to understand where they're coming from. As I mentioned before, you know, theories are not, you know, justifications or excuses for behavior, but it's a way to help us better understand. And I think, you know, just to have some, you know, as Megan mentioned, someone like Eileen Warnos, who clearly is not a good person, but is still a victim. And to have, to be able to have some empathy on both sides for both the victim and the offender, um, you know, I think it's important to, you know, be open-minded and to understand why people do the things they do. I think there's, I, Amy's totally right, of course, like try to keep an open mind and not, you know, think that you know it one way, just try to stay open. But there's a couple other things I would say. Um, we get people who write to us all the time who say, I didn't know this, I just learned this. And then I went and researched it further. Great, if you learn something and you're questioning it, research it further, that's awesome. I, you know, that's the greatest thing. We do the same exact thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, take it a step further. I also think that, you know, you should listen to whatever podcast you want, but it's always nice to listen to, you know, kind of well-rounded. Like if you're gonna listen to an entertainment one and just a storytelling one, that's great, but then maybe balance it out with another one that maybe has a professional or someone who might have a professional opinion, just so you're getting maybe some diversity and some well-rounded information. And I think something that you pointed out that's important is you want people to look at this stuff critically because people who are listening to podcasts are potential jury members. And that's mm -hmm. one of the points of all of this is you know, even in the Melanie McGuire case, I don't necessarily think that she is innocent, but I do believe that there are a lot of issues in the trial. So I think anyone who's listening, at least if they're now going to be a jury member at some point, they may remember, oh, everything's not as it seems. Oh, that expert was paid for their testimony. Oh, this is said, this was done this way because it was, you know, a rule of law and not because it's factual, you know, so there's just, you know, just to be able to really look at things critically and not take things at face value. And tell our listeners where they can find you, listen to you, and interact with you. <laughs> Do I know? <laughs> so women and okay, oh, obviously, sorry. Women in Crime podcast on Instagram, Facebook, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And Direct Appeal One, but Direct Appeal Two hopefully will be 
release shortly. Yeah, you can listen. So you can look up Direct Appeal or Women in Crime. You could also go to the websites if you want. So we have directappealpodcast.com and we have womenincrimepodcast.com. And then we're, you know, oh, we're also we're doing around. some upcoming media appearances. So. Yeah, we'll be, um, so we did just have our 2020. We'll be on Court TV and Investigation Discovery. Yeah, really? Amy's going to be on Court TV on, what is it, Judgment with Ashley Judgment Banfield? Judgment with Ashley Banfield. That's in February, and then we are going to be on a new ID series. Not sure the work title yet, but that's also coming out in February. Awesome. Good things to come in 2021. Hopefully, hopefully. it'll be a better hopefully year. Better. <laughs> <laughs> Anything right. will be better, right? Yes, yeah. I'll, I'll take it. All right, Megan and Amy, thank you, thank you. so very much. Um, of course. Happy holidays. Thank happy you so 2021. <laughs> and, uh, you know, hopefully we can uh, cross paths again soon. And I look yes. forward to seeing you both on television and everywhere. <laughs> thank you for thank having you. us. You guys are so much fun. Thank you so much for this having us. This was great. Us. We appreciate it. This is Sip With Me News. I'm Erin Carlson. And I'm Ioana K. Cotto. Here are the things you need to know from this week's headlines. Federal inmate Brandon Bernard was executed this week by lethal injection for his part in a 1999 double murder robbery. Even with high-profile pleas from around the country to the Trump administration for clemency, due to Mr. Bernard's age at the time of the crime and the involvement of several minors, he became the second person to be executed by the federal government since the election took place, and is one of six who was scheduled for execution during the lame duck transition to the Biden administration. President-elect Biden has said the string of federal executions has given new life to the fight against the death penalty. With the prick of a needle, the battle against COVID-19 took what could be a decisive turn Monday as the first federally approved COVID vaccine was injected into an American arm. Sandra Lindsay, an ICU nurse who has been on the front lines of the battle against the virus that's killed almost 300,000 people in the U.S. alone, joined in the applause moments after the first dose was injected into her left arm. The U.S. has ordered at least 100 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine with the option to buy another 500 million. Of all the vaccines currently in development, it has put in advance orders for 800 million doses. That trend among wealthy countries has concerned global campaigners who say poor countries are set for a longer wait because richer countries are looking after themselves first. The federal government this week, joined by 40 states' attorneys generals, joined hands to advocate for the breakup of tech giant Facebook. The cases allege that the company made acquisitions to strategically squash and prevent competition in the marketplace, ultimately reducing marketplace quality for the consumer. The pillars of the suit are Facebook's acquisitions of WhatsApp and Instagram. The suit marks one of the first serious and sizable moves by the U.S. government to break up big tech and regulate some consumer-harming marketplace maneuvers. Trump administration officials are expected to say this week whether the monarch butterfly, a colorful and familiar backyard visitor now caught in a global extinction crisis, should receive federal designation as a threatened species. Climate change and destruction of milkweed plants on which they depend on has caused a massive decline of these butterflies. Federal protection for the monarch could draw stiff resistance from agricultural groups concerned that habitat protection rules might interfere with farm operations. Those are your headlines for the week. Be sure to tune in next week for the news you need to know now. Thanks for listening to Sip With Me with Ioana and Erin. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, 
sipwithme.org. There you can find our recently released cocktail book as well as other exciting Sip With Me content. And if you love our podcast, don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Instagram at sipwithme underscore. Join us next week for a discussion with Dr. Ashley Wellman, criminologist and author of The Girl Who Dances with Skeletons, My Friend Fresno.